what is the sentiment, right, about coming forward? The police commissioner keeps saying there is a sense that, you know, anytime anyone goes for help, they're going to be discovered and then they're going to be punished. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news story? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Brought to you by Hackensack Meridian Health. Visit our partner site, nbcnewyork.com slash healthu to help you on your health journey. Hackensack Meridian Health, life years ahead. As of late summer, more than 100 police officers around the country have killed themselves. And here in New York City, at least seven as we close out the summer and the numbers keep climbing. Hello everyone, this is David Ushery, an anchor at 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. on News 4 New York. And in this edition of our Debrief podcast, we welcome our investigative reporter, Paisy Chang, because Paisy, you recently took another look at the NYPD's response to the suicide rate. It is a crisis for this department. It is, David. And uh, what we were curious about is, what is the sentiment, right, about coming forward? The police commissioner keeps saying, go and talk to somebody. You need to talk to somebody. It's confidential. We need to talk about it. We need all members of the police department to understand that to, to, to go for help is not a weakness, it's a, it's a strength. And there are so many different ways to get help. But why do people not do it? PAPA, peer, the peer support network, um, you know, the, the leader of that group told us that on average he gets about 400 calls a year mm. out of a staff, a force uh, of 36,000. 36,000, right. That's not very impressive. Right. And um, there is a sense that, you know, anytime anyone goes for help, they're going to be discovered and then they're going to be punished. Yeah. Um, so there were some interesting things that we learned from within the department. So, um, you know, the employee assistance unit, which is where you might go if you had a, um, a mental issue or something happened at work and your lieutenant saw it and referred you to it. Um, the NYPD needs to know they have psychologists on staff, but mainly they are there to evaluate your fitness for duty. Um, they need to know, do, can you be on the job with a gun on right. the street with, you know, citizens? Um, can, can you be there to apprehend criminals? Um, or do you need to be on restricted duty? Right. Now, restricted duty is different than modified duty. Restricted duty is sort of, you know, you, you can't do everything that a police officer can because of a um, physical ailment or a mental issue. Modified is if you're under investigation. So there's a gotcha. distinction there. Right. So, um, this but in the mind of a cop, I think, right? Well, without a, without a gun and a shield. Yes. Um, it does something to them, at least so they tell us. Like, they tell us it, it makes them feel like they're not cops, right? right? This isn't what they were out to do. And when you are on restricted duty, there's a limited number of tasks for you to do. And so we talk about in our story, the Viper unit. Mm -hmm. That's the unit that watches security videos in housing projects. Um, very often, that's where they put cops on modified duty, mm -hmm. cops that are Better under investigation. So, you know, it's hard to not feel like it's a punishment. So let's back up. You opened yeah. your piece recently that aired on, on NBC4 New York uh, with the family member of an officer who was assigned to that unit. And ultimately, for a number of reasons, that officer took his own life. Tell us about it. So Jose Benitez was a, uh, he graduated top of his police academy class. He uh, was a successful officer. He quickly was promoted to sergeant and he could have had any beat he wanted. He chose to work in the Bronx. He was in a plain clothes anti-theft group, right? This is what he wanted to do. He was a street cop. 
And um, he also happened to be an avid runner. He was on the racing team. And, you know, after his death, it became apparent that he had a lot of accolades. He was a good cop. He wasn't never in trouble. Um, he started having some difficulties. Um, and it was compounded by, you know, the job as well as some personal issues. And um, he sought help within the department. He was evaluated by an NYPD psychologist who decided that he was to be placed on restricted duty. So they took his gun and his badge. And uh, he went to get treatment. You know, they sent him to a doctor. And, it, you know, that doctor determined that he had bipolar um, illness, some degree of it. And he was being treated for it. He was on medication. Um, he was reevaluated and put back on the job, reinstated into the NYPD, but he never got his gun and his badge back. He could not go back to full duty. So they put him in the Viper unit. And this to his family, I mean, when you talk to his family, they said this was devastating for him. He said that that was a place where, you know, people that are in trouble go. Kind of a punishment. You know, he felt like he was being punished. Right. And that this was a way to punish him for coming forward with, um, you know, his troubles. Which, of course, is, you know, not, you know, the NYPD has only a limited place, a limited number of places to put officers who can't be on right. patrol, right? right? There are a lot of places that they can put you. There are a lot of they can put you in um, an administrative job, you know, at a precinct. Um, just anything that doesn't include patrolling, you can't have a firearm, and no enforcement duty. So Viper was one place that he was placed. But, you know, after he died, they um, sued the city for his death. A lot of information came out, and they interviewed the NYPD psychologist who evaluated him. And she said that even though she evaluates his fitness for duty, that's all she does. She doesn't treat him for his mental problems, and she also doesn't get to decide which assignment he gets. And so the family was saying being working in Viper on overnights really messed with his sleep schedule, which is what, you know, the doctor had said he needs to have a steady sleep schedule. You know, this is going to help with the with the illness, you know, along with the medication. And they argue that, you know, putting him on overnights on this really you know, in this mm. unit that was so undesirable Added contributed to, to his stress. So this was a few years ago, Paisley. What do we know about the department's procedures and policies since then? Well, we just spoke to uh, First Deputy Commissioner Benjamin Tucker, who said that they are, he, he has a working group that consists of officers as well as mental health professionals and doctors. And he has already made some changes. So, um, you know, they are looking at, they already he said, you know, if we take your gun away on restricted duty, we don't necessarily take your badge. We take guns and shields. Maybe we don't need to take the shield, so we're looking at that as a possibility. If they let officers keep their badges, they can at least still do some enforcement and, and investigative work, but it still remains inside, mm -hmm. away from right. civilians. Right. You know, um, it, there it remains to be seen if that makes any difference, but, you know, that's, that's one thing that they have changed. Right. You know, we sat down with Commissioner O'Neill uh, after, I, I don't even know how to refer to it, a first round of, we had three in a week, I believe, or two within 48 hours. And um, he said even his thinking has had to evolve. Yeah. Uh, but the department wants to get the message out there. This is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength to step forward and say, look, I may need some help here. Um, but whether that message gets through is still a challenge. Yeah. So. Um you know, people we've spoken to, including Frank, Dr. Frank Dowling, he's a psychiatrist, a medical advisor to Papa. Mm -hmm. He
he treats a lot of officers, you know, privately. Um, he says that, you know, you, you're really going to need an evolution in thinking, you know, not just in terms of the NYPD, but really in the city in general. And something that he mentioned that was so interesting is that, you know, the, the statistic, the rough statistic is that one in six New Yorkers probably could, you know, use some help right. um, with their mental state, right? And if, if you were going to project that onto the NYPD, that number's probably one in three. By the time they finish a career, probably 12,000 or 13,000 of those 36,000 could benefit from talking to a professional. Just based on the exposure that they have to traumas, you know, an, an officer could see more trauma in one day, in one tour, than any of us could see Absolutely. in our entire lifetime. Yeah. And so um, he said it's very important to talk about these things that they experience and they see because what you see can be imprinted in your mind. These types of exposures over the years likely changes someone's brain physiology. He's a big proponent in, in, you know, officers being able to talk to someone. If officers didn't feel like they were going to get their guns or badges removed, or a, the, the other problem is, you know, we, we only think about this in terms of a global view, but for the average officer, they're thinking about a couple things. Let's say they work in a command that's 30 minutes from their house, right? That's pretty convenient. Yep. You don't, you, maybe you could take the subway there, you don't have to drive. Right. If you um, are on restricted duty, they could put you anywhere else in the city. In the five boroughs. So mm -hmm. if you're working in the Bronx, let's say, and suddenly they transfer you to Staten Island, you'd have to drive. All of that is like extra money that you're gonna have to spend out of your own pocket, time away from your family. Mm -hmm. And um, also when you're on restricted duty, you don't make as much overtime. Mm -hmm. And it takes a toll on you emotionally. Takes a toll well. on you emotionally, and so there's a lot of um, practical things that happen when you go on restricted duty that I think the department is, you know, at this point looking over. Right. I think the takeaway from your latest story on yeah. it, it seems to be that with the first deputy commissioner now, uh, and this recent spate. Again, we've said seven so far in 2019, as we and so many in such I a short here. amount of time, in right? In such a Two short months. amount of time, and many of them according to those who knew them, gave no indication that well, they were struggling. Well, that is the danger, too. So um, a lot of experts say it's not the officers that come forward mm -hmm. to ask for help that you need to worry about. Mm -hmm. It's the officers that, that don't. don't. And how do you reach out to that? So that's where this culture change needs to happen. It needs to be a culture you change. You need to make it seem like, you need to make people believe that it's okay to talk and that you're not gonna be punished. And so one of the things they wanna do is um, follow the model that they did in Los Angeles, the LAPD, and put peer counselors at the precinct level. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so that you know, you're not going to one PP to look right. and talk to someone, right. right? You go to one PP, everyone's going to know what's happening, right? Like, what what are you doing over here? What you, why'd you make the trip out there? If they're at the precinct level, then it's just somebody else that you're talking to. And then there's all these like groups that have sprouted up, just just peer networks, retired cops. Mm. One, someone else we interviewed in our piece, Melissa McCoy. Her fiance um, committed suicide back in 2012, also a total surprise. Were there any warning signs? No. And that's the surprising thing because she would talk to her family, she would talk to me. Once she died, she found um, medical receipts for a therapist, but a different name, a totally different name. So she was trying to get help, but even then in secret. She was using a different name, and that is really common, apparently, um, among officers. And so um, she has started her own little network on Facebook. Hey, reach out, you know, call me if you need. And a lot of times it's just, you know, even if it's just to talk to somebody who might understand what you're going through. Right. Um, it helps. 
You yeah, know? it does. Well, we want people to talk about it. The I-Team has been kind of highlighting this. We will continue to do so, Paisy. Thank you for your reporting on it. And we want to share this number with you, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-8255. That's 24-7. It's free. It's confidential. Pick up the phone. 1-800-273-8255. Again, Paisy, thank you. We'll look forward to your follow-up reporting on this issue. I'm your host, David Usher. We want to thank our producers, Jesse Edwards, Liam McBain, and Ben Berkowitz from the NBC New York digital team. We'll see you next time on The Debrief.